the superscription because it's very relevant to the to the psalm. Uh, again, not all superscriptions are divinely inspired. Some of them are because they're quoted. The superscriptions are a couple of them, at least one, maybe two, are quoted in the New Testament, uh, which means they are divinely inspired. Clearly. Um, but uh, even the ones that we don't have absolute assurance of divine inspiration for, they are uh, generally considered increasingly in um, in, in scholarship uh, uh, in more recent years uh, reliable uh, uh, descriptions of the background to the Psalms. Uh, they were uh, they were inserted. These superscriptions were during the intertestamental age, probably or late in Israel's uh, history by rabbis and the like. Uh, but uh, uh, a, they're generally understood to be accurate uh, representations of the background of the Psalms when they, when they speak about that, including this one. So, <clears throat> Psalm 92, listen reverently as the Lord speaks to you uh, through my reading of this. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to thy name, O Most High, to declare thy loving kindness or covenant love in the morning, and thy faithfulness by night, with the ten-stringed lute and with the harp, with resounding music upon the lyre. For thou, O Lord, hast made me glad by what thou hast done. I will sing for joy at the works of thy hands. How great are thy works, O Lord! Thy thoughts are very deep. A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this, that when the wicked sprouted up like grass, and all who did iniquity, iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. But thou, O Lord, art on high forever. Behold, for behold, thy enemies, O Lord, for behold, thy enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. But thou hast exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil, and my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes. My ears hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for being a God who reveals things that to us, uh, particularly about our need of Christ, that we would not otherwise know by the creation itself. Yes, the creation speaks of your power and your wisdom. We see that in the budding flowers and trees. We see that in this 
night sky as we look at the stars. We see that um, uh, in the creatures that you provide for, including ourselves. But Lord, we do not know the way of salvation uh, from the penalty of our sins, except by you speaking through special revelation, through the scriptures. Um, We thank you so much that you have given us this precious word of yours. Would you please help us to benefit now from this portion of your word as we, as I unpack it, would you grant me um, wisdom and accuracy in explaining what this passage means, and would you please give each one of us hearts um, that wish to respond appropriately to what we hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, um, when someone gives you a gift, whether it be for your birthday or at Christmas time or maybe some other, uh, some other occasion, but when you receive a gift, especially if that gift has been bought in a grocery, not a grocery store, bought in a store, you know, a store that has toys or whatever in it, when somebody buys you a gift like that, kind of a complicated gift, there is almost always instructions included along with the gift. Now, if you're like me, you never read the instructions. You just try to assemble the, the thing to, uh, or figure out how to use whatever you've been given without looking at the instructions. Well, trust me, take some advice from Pastor Mark. Uh, it's, it's a good idea, usually, to read the instructions uh, when you get uh, a gift that you need to have to figure out how, to, how it works. Um, because I usually resort to the instructions eventually anyway. But um, the instructions explain the correct way to use the gift. You have, to, you have to do certain things to the gift in order to get the full benefit out of it. For example, if you, um, some of you boys might relate to this, but some of you girls might as well. I used to like squirt guns when I was a boy. I would buy a squirt gun. Um, and I never looked at the instructions, but instructions probably came with it, and probably said something like, you're for outdoor use only. Your mother would appreciate that instruction. Uh, you only use a squirt gun outdoors. Uh, it might also say, uh, use only water in the squirt gun. You don't want to put gasoline in a squirt gun and squirt gasoline. You want to squirt only water from a squirt gun. And the instructions probably tell you that. So that you can uh, benefit from the gift and so that others can not be harmed by your gift. At any rate, um, God has given us a gift, children. The Bible, he's given us many gifts. But one of the most blessed of gifts that God has given to us as believers is the gift of the Christian Sabbath. We call it the Lord's Day. God calls it the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, but it is called the Sabbath. And in the New Testament age, we usually refer to it as the Christian Sabbath because the Jewish Sabbath was on a, was on Saturday, but God moved the day uh, to Sunday, the first day of the week, and uh, so we oftentimes will call it the Christian Sabbath um, nowadays, in Reformed circles at least. But the Sabbath is a gift that God has given to you and to me. And he intends for this gift of the Sabbath day and our observance of it to be something that is enjoyable, that is something that is beneficial, something that is a blessing to us, his people. And also, it is also very much for God's glory. 
as well. But it's for not just for God, it's for us as well. And God has given us instructions in his word as to how to utilize or use this day, which is the Lord's Day, which is Sunday. And, um, and in, in these instructions that are found in the scriptures, we learn the correct way to use this gift, which is the day, uh, which is today, actually, uh, the Christian Sabbath, which is the first day of the week, Sunday. Um, and when we use it correctly, the Bible teaches, including in the passage we're looking at today, that there is great blessing associated with its use that comes to us as well as glory to God. And this psalm is one of the places, certainly not the only place, but one of the places where we find instruction about how to use the day uh, properly. I want to just briefly mention uh, something here because there are uh, a lot of Christians that will and even some Reformed Christians, uh, who will sometimes say, well, that's the Old Testament. You know, if you're in the Old Testament, it's the Old Testament. Um, you know, we don't need to be focusing on what the Old Testament has to say so much. We need to be focusing on what the New Testament has to say about the Sabbath. Um, I hope you understand why that's problematic. Because, first of all, anything that is found in the Old Testament that is not repealed in the New Testament, like Seventh-day worship, uh, or Seventh-day Sabbath-keeping, the Seventh-day part has been repealed. It's been moved to Sunday, the first day. But anything that has not been repealed by God in his word still remains in force, right? And it's also still applicable to us if it hasn't been done away with. And the things that have been done away with in, the, uh, in our age are, from the Old Testament, are ceremonial laws. Whatever the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament are, they have been done away with. The seventh day observant was one of the ceremony, it was a ceremonial element of the fourth commandment, which is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. <coughs> so whatever is found in terms of uh, a- a- applications of the fourth commandment in the Old Testament, we can still go to and go, okay, that applies to me still today. Okay. Enough said about that. We're going to look at two things about the Sabbath, uh, summarized in two points uh, in this remainder of our time together from this psalm. The first, we're, first we're going to look at the business of the Sabbath. I'll explain that in a minute. The word, my word choice there. And secondly, we're going to look at the blessings of the Sabbath, uh, of Sabbath worship. The business of Sabbath worship and the blessings of Sabbath worship. So, first, I want to talk about the business of Sabbath worship. What do I mean by the word business? That's kind of weird language to use. But, you know, B, blessing business, that's why I did that. Because they begin with the same letter. But what I mean by this is what the day is all about in terms of what we do on it. Our activity on the day uh, of the Sabbath. In other words, the work and I'm going to use the word work, that God has instructed us to be engaged in on this day. That's what I mean by the business of the Sabbath. Now, you might be thinking to yourself right now, now wait a second, Pastor, isn't the Sabbath, isn't the Lord's Day supposed to be a day of rest, not a day of work? Well, yes, it is to be a day of rest. But here's what it's to be a day of rest from. It's to be a day of rest 
from the labors and recreations of the other six days of the week that are allowed on the other six days of the week. That's what it's a day of rest from. Those labors and those recreations that are appropriate on the other six days that God has given to us. God never intended uh, the Sabbath to be a day of total inactivity. In fact, the very opposite is true. The, the day, the Sabbath day is to be a day of vigorous spiritual activity. But it is spiritual activity, spiritual work, if we, if you want to use that word, uh, that we are referring to here. And how do I know this? Well, uh, how do we know this? Well, our rest is to be patterned after God's rest. God didn't have to rest on the seventh day of creation. He was not tired from his six days of work. He's God. He rested to set a pattern for us, for all of his creatures, down through all of the remainder of, uh, of world history. And God, when he was resting, he was not inactive. He was no longer creating, that is true. But what God was doing was he was sustaining everything that he had just created. I don't know if you realize this. A lot of people think that somehow God creates and then walks away from the creation and the creation just kind of sustains itself. That is utter nonsense. Everything that exists only exists because God wills its continued existence. And he wills the continued existence of his creation on day seven of creation week. He is working, as it were, to sustain the creation. And he still is, even though he's resting in the way that uh, he's entered into the seventh day rest that he invites us to join him in um, now and uh, ultimately in heaven. But he is still working. He is doing things. And by the way, he's not only sustaining in day seven, he is also contemplating and admiring his handiwork. That is work. He he is thinking about what he has done in the previous six days. And our resting is patterned after and is to emulate his resting as much as creatures can do it, you see. So, our resting is an active resting patterned after God's. The Lord's Day, back to us now, the Sabbath, I mean the same thing when I say Lord's Day or Sabbath, is to be spent by us actively contemplating what God has done, who he is and what he has done, and especially contemplating the rest, and I'm going to explain that, that he has given to us um, and that he has yet to give us, the fuller rest that he has yet to give us in heaven. And then, in addition to our contemplations, Worshiping him as we contemplate what he has done for us and what he will do for us in the future in the way of redemption and uh, blessing. So yes, the entire day is to, be devo- uh, is to be devoted to this activity of contemplating God's rest, which comes to us in Christ, rest from the condemnation of, of, our, uh, of the law uh, toward our sin, and our freedom that we have in Christ and peace, we are to contemplate that more or less the entire day and praise God for it in worship. Or we are to, if we are not engaged in that activity specifically of contemplation and worship, 
we are to engage in those things that help promote that activity. You need to eat. If you starve yourself throughout the day, well, it depends on if you're fasting or not, but after a while, your lack of food can get distracting. It doesn't promote the purpose of the day unless you're fasting, in which case it does, but you've got to concentrate on that. But it can be distracting if, you're not, if your stomach is growling. You've got to eat. promotes the purposes of the day. A nap may promote the purposes of the day because if you can't stay awake in evening worship, because you can't, because you're unwinding from the last six days, if you haven't had a nap, you need to take a nap. promotes the purpose of the day. But you see my point. It's the purpose of the day that is important. So, what is your Sabbath, generally speaking, look like? What's going on in your Sabbath besides this? Sunday morning worship. How much of your day is devoted to seeking the Lord, contemplating his goodness, um, enjoying the fellowship of the saints who are also contemplating his goodness? How much of your day is done, uh, is observed that way? Do some of the works that you do on a typical Sunday promote the purpose of the day? Something that you ought to consider, I ought to consider, we all ought to consider, because after all, the day doesn't belong to us, does it? It is the Lord's day, not our day to get done what we want to get done, get our, our, do, our to-do list done. Something to think about. Also, about whether we should be um, taking our rest by causing others to work or recreating. Is that something that uh, maybe you're doing a little too much of on the Lord's Day? Okay. So, we are to be about the business of Sabbath worship. What does that mean? Uh, doing what? What is the business of the Sabbath and Sabbath worship? Well, the text gives us a, a number of uh, uh, clues. They're more than just clues. They're statements, really, about what is to go on on the Sabbath day. So I'm going to summarize it under two points. First of all, we are to thank and praise God. This is still under my first point of the business of the Sabbath. We are to thank and praise God for who he is. And we are to thank and praise God for what he has done. So first of all, for who he is. Verse 5 and verse um, 15 are a couple of the verses that speak of who God is and our need to give thanks to him. Before I go to those, though, look at verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. It is good to do so, to thank him. Uh, it is good in the sense that God, at least one way it's good, in the sense that God himself is pleased with and values the praise and the gratitude that you offer him, particularly on this day. It is good in God's sight that you give thanks to him and praise him. We are we learn in Psalm 22, in David's psalm there, God, uh, it says in verse 3 that God is enthroned upon the praises of Israel, his people. There's a sense in which we are enthroning God by our praises and our thanksgivings offered up to him on this day. 
in particular. It is good for, if I can put it this way, for God or in God's sight when we are enthroning him in our hearts by our praise and worship of him. We are to praise him um, and thank him because of who he is. And the psalmist provides us with a sampling of the divine attributes for which we are to thank and praise him. Look at verse 8. He says there in verse 8, But thou, O Lord, art on high forever. Thou art on high. The the psalmist here um, is praising the Lord on the Sabbath. Now, this was the seventh day for him, not the first day, but it was still the Sabbath. And he's praising him for being on high. What does that mean? It's a reference to his eminence, his exalted status. He is the king of all the universe. He is over all. He he transcends the whole creation and watches over the whole of creation. You want to be thankful that God is in charge like that. And that there's no place that you can go where he is not watching you. Because he's on high, looking down upon uh, and loving, by the way, also his people, you and me. And we need to... That's one of the things we can thank him for. Thank you, Lord, that you are that all-seeing, that you are that exalted over all things, that nothing escapes your notice because you, you look down upon all my doings and goings-on. Verse 5, another thing, uh, a representative uh, sampling of what God would have us praise him for is found in verse 5. He says there in verse 5, the second uh, portion of it, Thy thoughts are very deep. He makes that observation. Thy thoughts, your thoughts, Lord, are very deep. Or your purposes, it can also be translated purposes or thoughts. We can praise the Lord for the profundity, if I can use that fancy word, of his mind, of his plans for the world, of his plans for you. Lord, you have my days numbered. You know exactly what you want me to do in this period of time that I spend upon the earth. There's nothing left to chance. You know it all, Lord. And you think of things in ways that I can't possibly fathom. And that's a good thing. Think of some of the scriptures. Paul says in Romans 11, uh, 33, Oh, the depths uh, of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. His ways are, are beyond our ability to fully comprehend. Isaiah says, uh, God says through Isaiah, My thoughts are not your thoughts, uh, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. We need to be thankful that he doesn't think like I do. I think petty thoughts. I think narrow thoughts. I think sinful thoughts. God doesn't think any of those things. And that's a good thing. His thoughts are much better, infinitely better than our thoughts are. Because of who he is, because he's God. They are, God's thoughts are infinite. They have infinite application and implication. They are eternal. He doesn't think thoughts successively like you and I do. 
uh, we, where we think this thought, then we think that thought, then we think that thought. God thinks all his thoughts, all at once, forever. Try to get your mind around that. You can't, I promise you. But that's a beautiful thing, that God is not like us in that respect, in so many other respects. And his, and his nature, his thoughts don't change. Again, they're eternal, so they, they don't have, there's no opportunity for change in God's thoughts because God's not defined by time. He's outside of time. So everything is eternally present, including his thoughts. That's something you can worship him for, that you can rejoice that he is not like you, fickle, not like me, sinful. The third thing, representative sample, uh, sample of what God can, uh, that we read of, it's, again, it's not an exhaustive list, but the third thing and the last thing that I'll mention in terms of praising him for who he is, is praising him for his perfect, his absolute uh, righteousness. Verse 15 makes this point. Uh, he is, the psalmist says, uh, he says uh, about the people uh, of the Lord, the righteous man, uh, righteous men and women planted in the house of the Lord, verse 13. They will uh, flourish in the courts uh, of our God. They will sit. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green to declare. This is the purpose of their, of their flourishing. God's people is to declare that the Lord is upright or righteous or just. It can be translated all three, translated all three ways. You see, God, again, not like me, not like you. We have, even as Christians, we're, we're, we're being transformed, yes, but there is still a fair amount of darkness in every last one of us that's called the old man. Yes, God sees us as clothed in righteousness, and he accepts us fully because of the righteousness of Christ with which we are clothed, but experientially, we're not Jesus. But, but he is. Jesus is God. God is Jesus. And the Father and the Spirit as well. But he is perfectly good. There is nothing but moral purity and, and goodness in him. That's all he is, morally speaking, is righteous. In his ways and in his thoughts. This righteousness was displayed, was manifested in the avalanche of hellfire that he employed to consume the wicked inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the negative side of the fact that God, implications of the fact that God is righteous. He consumes rebellious sinners who will not repent. If you're here today and you're not in Christ, that fire, you're liable to that fire, that wrath of God, if you don't repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus, who God is more than happy to have you take, take, to take this, the punishment that you deserve. He took it 2,000 years ago if you believe in him. And and he eliminates all that justice and that wrath that otherwise you will get in eternity when you leave this world in hell. But Jesus got the hell of all those who look to him in faith. Are you looking to him and trusting in him alone to save you from God's wrath and God's justice and God's righteousness? You can do that just by believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus alone to save you from that. But that God's righteousness was manifested uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah. But that uh, perfect righteousness is also that which accounted for the priest's inability to enter into the temple after the glory of the Lord filled it. 
Solomon's temple. It is also that which caused Isaiah to react the way he did when he saw God. He said what? Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I, uh, uh, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I've seen the holiness of God. The righteousness of God. And he said, woe is me. He was a believer. But he said, woe is me. Because he felt the sin in him. And how much of a... Um, 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 offense that sin is even in a believer's life to a holy God. But that's, we can thank him that he is that holy, that he is that righteous in all his ways. And of course there are many other things for which you can thank God, attributes of the Lord, his omnipresence, that he's a personal God that can be known personally, that he's not an impersonal force, that he is a God of compassion who takes pity on those who are afflicted and downcast and distressed and hurting, and that he is a God of grace who's willing to give you the opposite of what you deserve, to forgive you and love you and welcome you into his presence forevermore when you deserve, and I deserve exactly the opposite. So you and I are to thank him and to praise him. It is good to give thanks and praise to the Lord. But we are for who he is, but also for what he has done. This passage speaks of two samples, things, examples of things that he has done for us. First of all, his work of redemption, and second of all, his future acts of judgment. First, I'll talk about his work of redemption. Uh, verse 2 uh, speaks of this. Uh, I'll start in verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to thy name, O Most High. There's praise and thanks. And then he says, to declare thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness by night. Thy loving kindness. This is a reference again, as I mentioned earlier, to his covenant love. His covenant grace, willing to be gracious through the covenant to anybody who he who comes to him in faith and, and to the Son. He is a God who is fundamentally gracious to sinners. And the covenant, love, the, the chesed, the Hebrew word, points beautifully to that concept. And so that concept is the love of God in the covenant, the eternal covenant between the, the three persons of the Godhead. Um, that covenant love is what prompted God to reach out and redeem you and me. It's the love that prompts him to redeem, you see. Prompts him to save. Prompts him to take the wrath that you and I deserve upon himself in the person of Christ. And and it is God's covenant faithfulness, the second word that he uses there in verse 2, it is God's uh, emet, is the Hebrew word there, his faithfulness that keeps us in that loving relationship, in that forgiving relationship with God. Otherwise, we would all fall away into apostasy. God, that's the perseverance of the saints. God preserves so that we persevere in faith and obedience and don't fall away and become covenant breakers. And the elect can't become covenant breakers, of course. You all know that. So these two attributes of God's covenant love and his covenant faithfulness, they alone provide us with more than enough 
with which to praise God for all the rest of our life. And that's just a sampling of the things that God is worthy of your praise for in terms of what he has done. But another thing that he, uh, we can praise him for is his future, in terms of what he will do, is his future acts of judgment. Look at verse 9 and verse 11. I'll read them. For behold thine enemies, O Lord, for behold thine enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. And then down verse 11. And my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes. My ears hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. The psalmist, especially in verse 11 there, when he says, my eyes look exultantly and uh, upon my foes, or victoriously upon my foes. Um, there are different ways you can uh, render that. Uh, looking. But the psalmist there um, is, is referring to his taking satisfaction in. The looking there is looking with satisfaction. Okay? At the prospect, what he's looking at satisfaction with, he's looking at, with satisfaction at the prospect of the of the reprobate's destruction at the hands of God's justice in the future. People who are his enemies who are also God's enemies. But but here, this is important. I don't believe what this means is that somehow he's looking forward to the suffering of those individuals who are his and God's enemies. Rather, I think what the... the um, the satisfaction that he is taking the psalmist here is because he's looking forward to their the meeting out of God's justice to those who hate him so that God's justice will be magnified and shown forth. Paul speaks of this over in um, Vessels of Destruction, uh, Vessels Prepared for Destruction in, Psalm, uh, in Romans 9. Um, it's not because he takes gleeful delight in the horrors of hell for the enemies of God, but rather that God's justice is shown to be just what it is, just. And the psalmist can praise the Lord that God's justice is shown forth in that judgment. We read in, in Revelation 19 that the church is going to rejoice in God's destruction of the great harlot. Um, Various interpretations of that. But the wicked. Because why? Not because we take satisfaction in seeing them suffer per se, but that God is showing, I must punish those who I don't forgive. So, we are to thank and praise the Lord for what he has done. And we are to praise the Lord for who he is all on, and particularly on, not just Sunday, but particularly on the Sabbath. So let me ask you this, by way of application. Does the thought of praising and thanking God for one day, uh, a full day, of more or less doing that, does that seem or sound kind of burdensome to you? Or boring to you? 
Shorter Catechism, question number one, says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's your purpose. That's my purpose, is to glorify and enjoy the Lord. To be enamored with who he is and what he has done. That's what you were created for. So if you don't find the worship of God for who he is and what he has done on his day to be enjoyable and and fulfilling for you, it is not because you have somehow come to know the Lord and found him to be uninteresting and boring. That's not why you don't enjoy him, if you don't enjoy worshiping him or coming to church or reading your Bible, spend extended time in prayer and Christian fellowship on Sunday or even other days. It's either the problem is either because you are have a distorted view of who God is and a misconception of who God is, and thus you find him that misconception somewhat wanting or less than interesting, or you don't know him at all. Or, and there's a third thing too, um, sin in your heart as a Christian. But God is not boring. God is not uninteresting. God is not something, someone that you can contemplate and go, yeah, I'm done. I know enough about God now and I can move on to other things. You have, you need to ask the Lord to help you if you're struggling with those things. Well, lastly, secondly, and much more briefly, I mean that, in addition to the business of the Sabbath, this psalm speaks of the blessings of Sabbath worship. Again, back to verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, I already mentioned, because um, the Lord is pleased with and values our worship. But a second reason it is good is because it is good for us. The Sabbath uh, worshiping the Lord on the Sabbath is good for you and me. Because blessings come to us when we give God his due on his day. The fact that certain blessings flow to us um, from God in connection with our, and because of our worship of him on his day, when we do it rightly, the fact that that, that, that is the case is evident from three things. First of all, it's evident in this psalm, in verse 13 in particular. I'll get to it in just a minute. Secondly, it's evident because of what we read in uh, Isaiah, which I'll get to also. And also, it's thirdly because of what Jesus says. And I'll get to that in a moment too. But there are three evidences that God blessings will flow to you if you properly use this day. And uh, honor God in it. First of all, the psalmist says in verse 13, read with me there, that the righteous, he has been just talking about the righteous in verse 12, he says, planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. Those who are in the, and by the way, the house of the Lord, back then it was a physical building, right? It was the temple. But the house of the Lord you can say in some sense it's the modern-day equivalent of this building, but really it's wherever God's people gather and the means of grace are, are utilized uh, corporately. 
That's the house of the Lord. The, the physical building, the temple, was a metaphor for that. But it's coming together for worshiping. What's the building for? It's to worship God, who is, who is found uh, uh, to be sought there. And so his point is that if you are rooted uh, in the place where corporate worship, or I should say not even the place, where corporate worship is found, if you are participating in that and desiring that, then you will flourish like a tree. You will flourish in that place where worship takes place because worship is taking place there of God. And flourishing is what you will get from it. I'll say more about that in a second. Uh, but a second reason, that, uh, that, or evidence rather, that blessing flows from the right use of this day is because of what Isaiah says. Turn with me to Isaiah 58. Um, we memorized this, uh, our family did, some years ago in our, in our family worship, and uh, I th- would encourage you to consider doing the same. Isaiah 58, verse 13 and 14. I'll focus on verse 14 in a minute, but I want to read the context. If, because of the Sabbath, you turn your foot, so you turn from doing something, if because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure, what just pleases you for its own sake, turn from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, not a burden, but a delight. The holy day of the Lord, honorable, also call it an honorable thing. And shall honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, and speaking your own word. Notice what's going to happen. The blessing. Then, if you do those things, then you will take, you will take delight in the Lord as you take delight in the day, by the way. Uh, And I, the Lord speaking here, I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you treat the day as in a way, if you treat God in the day in, in a way that honors him and is in accordance with his instructions, you will be blessed. Verse 14 is all about blessings that you will receive. You will uh, delight. If you, if you honor the day you'll, and delight in the day, you'll end up delighting in God. You'll find coming to worship delightful. Not perfectly, again. We've still got sin that makes it, distracts us and kind of uh, uh, struggle, makes us struggle at times. But overall, you will delight in God's presence. If you honor the day, uh, you will. It, there's a promise there of sweet communion with the Lord. There's a promise there in verse 14 of victory over uh, sin and evil uh, uh, in your own heart and in your life. And there's promises there in, uh, in the end of verse 14 of experiential participation in your heavenly inheritance this side of heaven. That's what he means by, I will feed you with the heritage or the inheritance of Jacob, your father. For you. God doesn't have to do this, but he promises that he will as you honor him in the day. A third uh, evidence that blessings will flow to you 
uh, as you worship the Lord rightly on his day, comes from the words of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. He was speaking to the Pharisees, and he said in uh, uh, three of the first three Gospels, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. This is the Lord of the Sabbath saying this, by the way. And by, because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath implies that the Sabbath is still binding, is still applicable. And the Lord of the Sabbath says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. He's alluding to the order in which God created. He created man first and then created the Sabbath that man might be blessed in the Sabbath. He didn't create the Sabbath first and then create man's For the Sabbath's sake, he created the Sabbath for man's sake. For man's benefit. Your benefit. Mine. So those who view proper observance of the Sabbath on on Sunday and, and giving the whole day to the Lord, and those who view that, I hope there aren't as anyone here that does, but perhaps as some kind of great burden, some kind of great uh, um, price that has to be paid for being a Christian. You've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. In addition to the spiritual blessings enumerated in Isaiah that we just looked at there in Isaiah fifty-eight fourteen, this text, back to our uh, Psalm 92 text speaks of other blessings. Speaks of, says you will flourish like a palm tree and a cedar. This is in verse 12 and in verse 14. Uh, Verse 12, the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. And then verse 14, they shall be full of sap and very green. Again, keeping the tree metaphor going there. What's he mean by that? He's not talking so much, although it could include physical vitality, but he's not talking principally about physical vitality for the believer who seeks the Lord on his day. Um, he's talking principally about spiritual vitality. You will thrive spiritually in your relationship with the Lord and with other Christians. You will, you will thrive spiritually if you, if you Remember his day to keep it holy. You will experience spiritual fruitfulness like the date palm mentioned in verse 12. You will experience spiritual strength and stature like the stately cedar again mentioned in verse 12. They're metaphors for the, for, st- uh, for strength, for, um, um, I was trying to think of the word, but fruitfulness. But again, if you, if, you, if you honor the Lord on his day. This is what Paul, by the way, was speaking about when he said um, in, uh, to the Corinthians, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. He's talking about spiritual renewal there. Same thing uh, the psalmist is talking about. So do you long to thrive more spiritually than you're currently thriving? I hope you're not entirely satisfied with where, where, where you are spiritually. If there's room for more thriving, 
Sunday. Honoring the Lord. Now again, we you don't just do it on Sunday, but Sunday is a the, the Lord's Day is a key to how you look all the rest of your week. It's it's the way you hallow the rest of your week by hallowing the day, the particular day that the Lord has set aside for himself. You need to avail yourself of the means of grace, uh, one of which is proper observance of the Lord's Day. Secondly, he uh, another way in which uh, the believer will be blessed uh, in Sabbath worship is you will be increasingly fruitful, even in your old age. Verse 14 makes that point. They will still yield fruit in old age. This is just the opposite of the way our society sees old people. Sadly, in Western civilization particularly, uh, old people are uh, viewed, generally speaking, as unproductive, as used up, and therefore useless. Maybe some of you gray hairs know that feeling uh, when the uh, from the young looking at you. I've got some of that gray myself. And I'm going to have more of it if God gives me more time. No, God promises here that in in your latter years they will be golden years in terms of spiritual blessing and spiritual thriving. You will be spiritually productive. God wants to use the wisdom that he's given you over the years to be a blessing to younger people. You older, you younger people should want to be discipled by some of the older people. You ought to ask some of the older people in the church, would you mind spending time with me? Uh, getting, uh, getting a, spending time with me once a month or something and tell me what you've learned about God over the years. You ought to do that. And you older folks, you can define whatever that means to be older, um, ought to be willing to disciple some of the younger people in this church or outside of this church. You have much to offer because God has given you much to offer to them. And the younger folks should desire what you have that they don't have. If you want to be your latter years to be productive and a blessing to others and glorifying to God, keep the day. And finally, the final blessing that I'll mention uh, that uh, comes from Sabbath worship and uh, utilizing the day and obeying the commandment, the fourth commandment, is it will make you glad. Verse 4, For thou, O Lord, hast made me glad. And the implication there is in my worshiping you on your day. You have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands, in particular on your day. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have probably experienced this yourself. Perhaps you've come to worship before, kind of spiritually dry, with some maybe some sadness in your heart over something that happened during the week or something, some sin that you committed, and your spirits were lifted as you've Stop looking at yourself and started focusing on the Lord and how good he is and how kind and forgiving he is. And God took your sadness away or your, your um, uh, sense of unease away and replaced it with joy and gladness. 
The psalmist tells us in Psalm 147, I, think, I can't remember if it was David or not who wrote that, probably it was. <clears throat> for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant. And praise is becoming. It's pleasant. If you see it the right way, it's pleasant. And see him, more importantly, the right way. Is your relationship with God failing to bring you as much joy as the scriptures promise? might want to consider how you're using Sundays to help you grow in joy that you know is your inheritance, this side of heaven. Honoring him in the day. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as your only hope of being forgiven by God, you're currently under his wrath. And God's judgment is looming over you and you'll receive it. We all deserve God's wrath and his judgment. We all deserve to be cast into hell. And we will be unless we flee to Jesus Christ as our only hope of being forgiven by God. And it's a sure hope, but it's the only way a person can be forgiven. Unless you trust him alone to save you, you will experience God's wrath forevermore in hell. We all deserve it. I do probably more than anybody here. And I mean that, by the way. But I won't get it, and neither will anybody who is covered in Christ's blood. And you're covered in Christ's blood if, you've trust, if you're trusting in him to save you. Are you? Are you? You need the rest from God's justice and God, the condemnation of God's law. You need that rest that Jesus purchased that the Sabbath is a picture of. Flee to Christ and enjoy not just Sabbaths, this side of heaven, but the eternal Sabbath in heaven with Jesus. Let's pray.